The Secrets of Stargate is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Stargate. Daniel West Jackson has identified the seventh symbol. All right, here we go. We are about to try to make a connection. All we gotta do is bust out of here, commandeer the ship, and fly on home. say that a lot. I know that this could be dangerous, but this is our job, right? It's what we signed on to do. It was never about going home. It's about getting us to where we're going. Hi, I'm Jack Barazzini, and you're listening to The Secrets of Stargate where we talk about the hidden meanings and deeper layers found in the Stargate movies, TV series, and more. Joining me today are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father. How's it going, Jack? Pretty good. How about you? And Lisa Jones. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Doing well. Good. And Victor Lambs. Hey, Victor. Hi, Jack. Today we are discussing the series premiere of Stargate SG-1, Children of the Gods. Children of the Gods is the series premiere of SG-1, and it picks up about a year after the events of the film. The episode opens with a group of airmen playing poker while they guard the inactive Stargate. The Stargate awakens, and alien warriors wearing cobra armor come through the gate. They capture a female soldier and kill the rest before returning through the gate. Jack O'Neill, who's been retired and taken up astronomy, is recalled to duty at Stargate Command and is reactivated by General Hammond, who is now in command of the Stargate program. O'Neill is able to convince General Hammond not to send a nuke through the gate and destroy Abydos, and instead send through a box of Kleenex. The box comes back through the gate with a note from Dr. Daniel Jackson. They're able to meet up with Dr. Daniel Jackson. We get introduced to new characters like Samantha Carter. Old characters like Kowalski and Ferretti also return, and we're introduced to the gold for the first time, including Apophis, who is the main villain for the season. The first thing I wanted to talk about was the uh, the differences in the canon from the movie and the TV show. Sure. Well, you know, one big thing that you you mentioned the name Gold. You don't hear that yeah. at all in the movie. We don't know what this race mm-hmm. is that Ra comes from. We just know that he's an alien race who they kind of sort of make it sound like he's some kind of parasite, but the movie makes it look more like. He's an alien who has taken on his human form instead of actually being a parasite. Well, we get more development on that, that we find out, yes, they are very much snakehead parasites, as you will hear them called many, 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 many times. They kind of remind me of Evil Trill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, they are. Because in the movie, he looked like kind of like your typical gray alien that you mm-hmm. see in any uh, science fiction film. And they never really explain how he took over the body of the Egyptian boy. It's just, he did that. But in this in this show, they really go through the whole process. Like, um, when he comes through the gate uh, later on in the episode, uh, Apophis and the Jaffa warriors come through the gate, and they take uh, Shari, Daniel Jackson's wife, mm-hmm. and Skara. And later on, we see how they're implanted with the ghouled parasites. It's kind of like they crawl through the back of your neck and take over your brain. Yeah, and so we do get to meet uh, for the first time here Apophis, who is the show's version of Ra for for at least the first uh, season or two. And, um, you know, where Ra ruled the day, Apophis rules the night. And he is not really fleshed out very well in this first episode uh, either. So that's something else we can we can talk about. But they do. They do. One thing. One big thing I think this this episode does, of course, is 
it pretty much exists to establish there's a lot bigger universe out there than just the one gate going to the other gate on these two planets. Instead, there's tons of gates, and we'll talk about that in a minute, how they establish that. There's tons of bad guys because they say that, well, maybe Ra wasn't the last one. I guess we just found another one, so maybe there's more out there. Yeah, there's a lot more out there. (laughs) Yeah. I think this episode gives them the motivation for why Mm -hmm. they want to go through the Stargate Mm -hmm. and keep going through the Stargate. Yeah, it sets up the premise for the entire show. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that. It's like, oh, why don't we just bury it? It's like, uh, they know we're here and they're coming for us. You know, (laughs) they could just do it the old-fashioned way and fly here. Well, and we've also got to go now find our friends, right? Save the wife, save the friend. Exactly. So that gives them personal motivation. And it does set up uh, one of the tropes on this series, which is um, a lot of the difficulties they face, a lot of the enemies that threaten Earth. It's really kind of SG-1's fault that... Yeah. That they are, you know, that Earth is under attack so often because SG One is out there sticking their nose where it doesn't belong, um, you know, and uh, and then trying to fix the fix the problems that they create. So I I find that very uh, relatable. I really like the scene where they're back on Abydos and Daniel shows them the big room with all the different cartouches that have the addresses for the different yep. planets. And where that's where they figure out where instead of the gate just going from Earth mm-hmm. to Abydos, they can go anywhere else. But they figure out that because of the expansion of the universe, they're going to have to right. account for the differences in distance over thousands of years. Which I was wondering about that as I was watching it because of time dilation. I wonder how that factors into that whole thing. They don't really touch on that, and I'm not sure not if really. they do later on in the series. They kind of take it as an assumption that the, the whole purpose of that room with all the cartouches is, here's the map that we're going to use. Now, imagine if you had a road map, but the world was stretching. And that's basically the principle they're doing is, you'd still be able to figure out, if I take these roads, I'd still get there. It'd just take longer to get there. You know, they just got, well, we'll just punch this into a computer, and the computer will, you know, think of like a, well, a starry night or one of the, you know, astronomy software packages just souped up that can then say, okay, since it was like this, now it's like this. Yeah, definitely just can extrapolate out to where everything would be. We also get to see the control panel that controls the gate on the Abido side, which we never see in the Correct. original movie. It looks like a big rotary dial, basically. Yeah. Which of that was funny. You'll get to see a lot of it. The DHD. DHD, for those who don't know, stands for dial home device. Don't forget your GDO <laughs> when you're using the DHD. And they, they have fun with it. Because, of course, it's, it's military. You know, the Air Force had, likes their acronyms. And so, of course, they had to kind of play with it. But, you know, yeah, they gave, like I said, gave name dial home device and garage door opener. and <laughs> yeah, Lots of acronyms in this show. <laughs> So we get Michael Shanks is replacing James Spader as Daniel Jackson, and we get Richard Dean Anderson, who's MacGyver, which is funny because they actually reference, they do a MacGyver reference in there. Um, He's replacing Kurt Russell as uh, Jack O'Neill. And I've got to say, just from the first episode, I actually, I like the casting in the show better than in the movie, which I guess is a good thing because they're going to be there for the long haul. Well, and and Michael Shanks, he starts out with James Spader, but he changes it because you'll see over the the 10 seasons and beyond, he completely changes this character. And it's he's still got the geeky, nerdy Dr. Jackson, but he really changes it in his own way. And he, he said in interviews that he really felt pressured when he first took on the role to basically imitate James Spader. But then he kind of realized a season or two in, it's like, wait a second, this is my character now. I've played this character a lot more than he has. And that's where he kind of starts changing it. Richard Dean Anderson, he pretty well takes the character and makes it himself. I mean, he's 
he, he didn't take a lot from Kurt Russell. A little bit. You can kind of see a little bit of it, but not much. <laughs> yeah. And I think the way that Richard Dean Anderson kind of created that new character, it just really set the tone for the entire series. It has so much, like you said, the wit and the humor and sarcasm just woven through it. Yeah, the one line where the character really clicked for him, I read, was at the end where Teal'c is, you know, has is freed everybody and Richard Dean Anderson is saying, come with us. And Teal'c says, I have no place to go. Jack O'Neill says, for this, you can stay at my place. That was kind of like the, you know, the Midwestern witty kind of humor, humorous remark that defined his character. See, and the MacGyver reference, which I believe we, we do get a few more later on, but was I read that that was an ad lib by Amanda Tapping. So that was that was kind of fun. And she threw in others as well that outtakes and things like that. There's there's one scene, there's an episode, I think it's later this season where they're fro- they're, they're in the frozen. It's mm-hmm. it's Jack O'Neill and, and Sam Carter. They're frozen by the Stargate. And there's an outtake where I'm with MacGyver. We should be able to get out of this. She's you know, we've got a belt and a pocket knife. You should be able to build a <laughs> nuclear reactor or something. And Richard Dean Anderson just looks at the camera like, <laughs> who set her up to this? <laughs> I heard that the principal cast did gel like very quickly early on. Christopher Judge has mentioned that Michael Shanks, Amanda Tapping and him just kind of uh, and uh, Richard Dean Anderson just kind of had chemistry very early on. We should also talk about the character of Samantha Carter, who's introduced here, played by Amanda Tapping. That intro scene with her, it, it felt very dated. I got to say, we're... we're... Oh, <laughs> they fixed it. It's so cringy. It was dated when they shown it. I mean, it was... and they. um. Yeah, that yeah. there's that one line in there that everybody remembers, yes. and it comes back <laughs> to haunt the series several times. It gets poked at several times throughout the run- rest of the run of the series. Even the writers yeah. realize this was a mm-hmm. stupid line. Mm-hmm. And I read that Amanda Tapping hated having to say it. Yeah, my uh, my 14 year old was watching it and she with me this week and she hadn't seen it in a couple of years we haven't watched the first one over again in a long time and she just was like that's bad like that's just trying too hard what were they thinking yeah and i'm like i guess they were trying to set up the whole i am woman but i have credentials and i'm amazing and it was it was bad and they do take that line in the 2009 final cut that brad wright put together they they do take that line out you'll be happy to know yeah i've I've, unfortunately i've not been able to to watch that but I, i did read that and yeah, there there are some points during that during that sequence, you know, where you're like, gosh, dial it back. But on the other hand, she's the only <laughs> woman in a room full of Air Force top brass. And so I think, you know, naturally you would come on a little strong to assert yourself just to, yeah. you know, win their respect. And it is it is kind of neat, though, as soon as she steps through the Stargate or even when the Stargate is on and before she steps through it, but certainly when she, when she gets to Abydos, there is that giddy, mm-hmm. you know, electric energy of like, oh, this is so cool. Yeah. Look at this. This is cool. This is cool. And there's no more. Right. of that so i think it yeah. kind of was that you know i'm the only woman in a room full of men for those who haven't seen the show they really dial back the you know again i am woman hear me roar right. like big time and quickly I, again i think they realized it was it was bad but mm-hmm. i still love jack o'neill's response it's not that you're a woman i like women yeah it's you're a scientist <laughs> i don't like science you know <laughs> i hate scientists <laughs> yeah pretty much after that scene they just kind of gel as a team and it becomes more irrelevant to them and so I always felt like that was just such a scene. Just they tried too hard. It just felt like they pushed it so hard in that scene. Like they have her like standing in the shadows and they use her nickname Sam instead of Samantha. And it just seemed like a very odd way to introduce a character like 
setting them yeah. up to be antagonistic <laughs> right from the beginning. Yeah. But then they don't do anything with it, which is good. And she was late. Yeah. But on the flip side, the scene where she and mm-hmm. Daniel Jackson meet is wonderful, right? That she's so excited and she introduces herself as doctor and you know, Jack O'Neill's like, I wanted, thought you wanted to be captain. And they just, uh, she and Daniel Jackson just start talking and talking and figuring all this out. And that was the the chemistry between the two of them. I just love that, the way they and, played and off Daniel each other. Daniel actually refers to her as a captain yep. doctor at one point. <laughs> and, and that just leaves on the principal cast. We we have Teal'c then, uh, who's played by Christopher Judge. And I can't imagine anyone else in that role. And how he actually got the role is 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 pretty funny, too. He was a big fan of the movie. And he went over to his best friend's house and his best friend's roommate was actually reading. I don't know if it was for the role of Teal or some other role. And he, he listened. He's, he was like, is this like Stargate you're, you're reading for? And uh, he immediately left, called his agent and said, if you don't get me a, an audition for this uh, Stargate show, I'm walking. Oh. I think a, a week or two later, he was he was auditioning for the role of Teal and, and nice. uh, got it. I really liked how he communicated his unease with what Apophis mm-hmm. was doing because he's the the first prime Jaffa of Apophis. He's the leader of his army, basically, or his royal guard. And throughout the episode, he doesn't really say mm-hmm. a lot. You can tell from his body language that he's not really cool with all these people being willy-nilly executed. So I feel like they did a really good job of setting that up without saying anything. So when it actually happens, it doesn't feel like it's out of the blue when he defects over mm-hmm. and helps Jack O'Neill and them to escape. Yeah, well, you, you even see it like right from the beginning where they walk through the gate for the first time in, onto Earth and they're blasting all the security forces there and everything. And he picks up a fire mm-hmm. M- M16 and kind of goes, these humans aren't as dumb as we thought they were. You know, there's something more here. And it, that's where you can tell us where kind of the wheels start <laughs> spinning a little bit of, hmm, there might be somebody that can... Uh, go against this this uh so-called god yeah i know <laughs> speaking of that first scene where they walk in i do have to say that um i was watching it with my wife and she had left the room for a minute to get something she comes in right as they come through with the big the big cobra head helmets on she's like what is this it's i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and i'm thinking about that too so I don't really understand what Apophis's plan is here. Is he randomly dialing Stargate addresses? If he gets a lock, he sends that little gold probe ball through. It scans the room. If there's any kind of woman there, he comes through himself with his guards. He doesn't just send his guards to, to kidnap. He, he comes through mm. himself. And it seems like he could more effectively delegate Maybe. some of that. Yeah. But... <laughs> But on the other hand, I can argue with his methods, but I can't really argue with his results. He's looking for his future wife. So, I mean, you know, you you guys who, you know, you're dating when you're dating your wives, you know, you you know, you you can't just send someone else to find the wife for you. You got to go do it yourself. Even if you're going to abduct her and make her, you know, take on a symbiote, but still. Very good. He's still got to have that. Definitely. Still got to have that meat cute, right? (laughs) Was a good, good introduction for him, right? And uh, apparently the the updated cut also explains my one big problem with that scene, which was, you know, they they leave, right? They they fire up the Stargate and leave. And I'm like, do they know how to use like the computers? But I guess they make it more clear in the recut that they manually dialed the Mm -hmm. gate, which they do later on in the show. So, yeah. And that's another thing we should mention is there's actually three different versions of this episode. There's the original uh, 90 minute version that was shown, I think, on Showtime when the show first came out and then there is a two-part version that's cut down for time and for content that was the syndicated version and then there is a recut version that came out in 2009 where like you were saying victor they redubbed people's lines i think michael shanks redubbed his entire dialogue and they also cut out this really unnecessary like mature scene that didn't need to be in there and it was literally put in there just because 
Showtime wanted it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there was no reason for it. As, as far as I recall, and, and, right. and Victor and Lisa, you can correct me on this. There's no place where we see full nudity like that anywhere else in the series. We, there's places that's hinted. Then there's there's a couple of scenes involving Amanda tapping that geeks really like, but you don't see anything. Yeah. But it's yeah. hinted. Well, there there is actually, I should say that the show is full of nudity starting midway through season one, all the way through parts of Atlantis. And you'll see it if you watch it on a video service that is very popular. It'll pop up at the beginning with the nudity warning. And after six or seven episodes, I was like, where is this nudity? And then Thor walks on stage. And I'm like, of course, (laughs) Thor. Oh, you're kidding. Apparently. (laughs) Yes, the uh, the puppet. Yeah. Yeah. So the alien gets a nudity um... warning. Some of the streaming services, they just, if Love one episode it. has nudity, they flag the whole series for nudity. If it has violence, they flag the whole thing, right. whatever. So for human beings being nude, this is the only scene. Yes. Yeah. So where do you watch the 2009 director's cut? I, I don't know. it. I could not find it. I was looking for it. As of this recording, the version on Netflix is the full 90-minute original version with that scene. And then on Hulu, it's right. the two separated 44-minute episodes with the stuff right. cut out. See, I'm, I'm wondering if it's one of those things where the only way you can get it is if you get the DVD with it. I th- I think that's what it is. Probably. I'll have to go. But I think my DVD set, I have to look to see what year we bought it to see if it's on yeah. there. But I think I would remember that if they recut it. Five seasons is the, the, the original box set. Wait, I think any of the DVD sets are not going to have this unless it specifically says on their pilot. And so I, I'm, I'm sure it's one of those things they've released, you know, and you could go spend $10 on eBay or something and get it. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, just uh, reading Brad Wright's comments well, on you know the first episode, and then he felt so passionately he was pushed by MGN and Showtime to say you're on cable, you can do violence, you can do nudity, and do it, do it, do it. And he felt so terrible about it afterwards that you know he he released that updated cut and he vowed never to do it again. And I think you know that's what made the show such a great family show for people to watch with their kids. And then you know the kids yeah. of those people are now watching it with their kids, and it's it definitely a very uh, upbeat, uh, fun show. And it is funny to funny to see, you know, again, that it was for the first five seasons on a premium channel. It was on Showtime and Showtime is not exactly known mm-hmm. for being family friendly, even on a good day. Yeah, especially back then, you know, because you had Skinamax and, and Showtime were the two really bad ones. And HBO was a little bit better, but it still had some pretty rough stuff. And of course, right. now you see what right. they put on, like with Game of Thrones, what was on that, you know. So, I mean, the idea of Game of Thrones being family friendly. No. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so it did stand out, mm-hmm. right? When you would sit down on Friday nights because we got Showtime just to watch <laughs> yeah. it. And we I don't know if we watched anything else on Showtime. And I think a lot of that is is down to, you know, Brad Wright, certainly Jonathan Glasner being the two showrunners, but also having Richard Dean Anderson in as as a you know executive producer or whatever his title was calling the mm-hmm. shots. You know, that was a big part of it. And of course, there was someone else calling the shots, too. And that was the uh, United States oh, yeah. military whose uh, involvement, mm-hmm. you know, they basically had, I think, final sign off on every script you know it, it led to some pretty funny situations that that we'll get to as we watch through some of the episodes nice. yeah the the, the, uh, the air force especially was heavily involved in this and so and you, I, you know what's funny is of course having served in the air force there's there there are bugs there there are errors that i see in especially uniforms that suddenly don't show up quite so much later on they tend to be pretty solid on uniforms after this and i'm sure that's air force saying that's not how you use our uniform let us show you how this is done. You know, 
So tell me, when they're around the, the conference table and they're in their dress blues, we don't see that later in the season. The, the funny part is uh, the only time I would ever have to wear my dress blues would be something like a commander's call or something like that, something a formal event. I do know in some places that is, you know, like especially if you're meeting with the general, and we'll talk, we, speaking of a, a central character who very much, he's kind of a secondary character, but he is very much a central character in this series is General Hammond. But yeah, if you're meeting with the general, you, you would be wearing your dress blues. But otherwise, if you're just in your work environment, you would be in just like the blue shirt. Like what uh, Master Sergeant Harriman is wearing, the the guy who dials in, another fun character, <laughs> not so much central, but fun. But you know, like what he's wearing, the short sleeve shirt or something like that, or the the, the camels. Like I, a lot of a lot of time I was in the Air Force, I was wearing the the BDUs, the camels. Which let's be honest, mm-hmm. that's wearing your pajamas to work. Those are so comfortable. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Gary Jones, uh, not Harriman, when the sh- when the show starts. Yeah, yep. so- he's a uh, regular Sergeant Davis, I think. Yeah. And he's also at this at this point he's a master sergeant. Um yeah, his name one changes. stripe on top mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of stripes below. And then he becomes a chief where there's three stripes up three stripes up top and below and it changes, you know, that's one of those things where again looking at all the different uniforms and there's times that Kowalski uh is captain, sometimes he's major, he's called major at some points, he's called captain at others. Uh there's a lot of little loosey goosey stuff that they do fix eventually in this, but it's just kind of like, <laughs> wait a second, those are captain's bars. Right. I thought he was a major. Jack, since you haven't watched all the episodes yet, mm-hmm. Walter, Harriman, Davis, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call him, who says Chevron one and you know lock are engaged and just keep an eye on him because in a couple of I don't know, I can't remember in what season but we'll have where they'll call him out and i remember the first time thinking has this guy been there the whole time i never noticed him before and it was only when i (laughs) nice when they called him out like season four that i went back and he's been in all this the shows he's he's there the whole series so he's like the the gunther of the series (laughs) yeah nice they they do they do have an interview episode, quote unquote, interview episode later where he gets to talk about his his technique at calling out the Chevrons. Yeah, that's fun. That's something I also have appreciated so far. I've watched a few episodes ahead um, of this one, mm-hmm. and this really scratches that 90s fun science fiction itch, which a lot of yes. modern TV shows really don't have. Like, that's been one of my main complaints with um, like Star Trek Discovery <laughs> or Picard. Or even like The Expanse, like they're just so dour and they, I feel like science fiction has forgotten how to have fun. So this is, this has been really mm-hmm. enjoyable to watch. Well, I will say, you know, that, that, you know, secrets of Star Trek, I got to throw in the yeah. pitch. Um, that's been one of our critiques with things like Discovery, Picard a little bit, but definitely Discovery is <laughs> they're too much into the dark. They're too much into the uh, big overarching story that they have to advance and you know, one thing about SG-1 is, yeah, there are some stories they advance, you know, and we set some of them up, the issues with Share, the issues with Skara, um, having to deal with all that. But then they have a bunch of just fun episodes yeah, that are just standalone, planet of the week, we go kill the bad guys, we save the good guys, we go back home, right. you know? <laughs> And I think I think some of that, too, is right out of the gate before they filmed anything. They had a 44 episode order, so they didn't have to do a pilot and then, you know, tweak it and stuff. They, um, you know, they had 44 episodes locked up before they started filming. And that was you that know, one of the lot. things that got Richard Dean Anderson. Yeah. And uh, Anderson engaged. But yeah. So, you know, you're you're going to get a lot of the fun planet of the weeks and. When a TV season now is, you know, eight or nine episodes, you just don't have any, right. any breathing room for that. It seems like it, it really. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. 
Okay, sweet. Yes, I was yes, just going to say that, that yes. too. Yeah, we got to go. So, I always said we should jump back and talk yeah. about General Hammond. Well, in, General Hammond of Texas. Yeah. So, so we, General we Hammond, touched on of course, it. he's the replacement <laughs> for General West. General West was the general at, at, in the, the movie. He's, he's since been replaced with Don, Don S. Davis, who's an amazing actor. I mean, anything you've ever seen him in, he's eternal rest grant unto him. Oh, Lord, sadly, he did pass away a few years ago. Mm-hmm. But he, uh, excellent, amazing actor. And he kind of, it's interesting, the introduction of him. What, let, Jack, let me ask you, what do you think of him just off of this first episode? He definitely comes across almost as a caricature of a military general. Like I almost expect him to have like a cigar mm-hmm. sticking out of his mouth, kind of like a Winston Churchill, almost that kind of vibe. But and he also doesn't seem to be particularly keen on the whole Stargate thing. But I, I've noticed even just watching a few episodes ahead, like he's going to really grow on me fast. Oh, he's he's he very much becomes uh, a major character in the mm-hmm. show and, and very much beloved character in the show. Um, he, uh, yeah, he, he really comes across and that's what struck me when I was watching this is I forgot how gruff he was the first half of this episode. I mean, how mm-hmm. he was like, I'm surprised I didn't hear him, you know, say Colonel Neil attention, yeah. you know, snap to attention. Let's go. Um, but he very much develops and yeah, he, he does start <laughs> out. I'm not so in, I'm not so sure about this. I don't think this is the right idea. Eventually, he warms up to the point that he actually looks forward to when he gets to go through the gate eventually. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah, he was really mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like looking back at it now, and there there is one moment in this episode where you can kind of see the sparkle or the twinkle in his eye, and that's when he's you know moments away from sending the. Uh, now it's a Mark, uh, Mark five. five nuke through the, yeah, we, we, we increment our marks every time they, they introduce a nuke on the show, but <laughs> he's moments away from sending it through, uh, you know, Jack O'Neill is, is standing on the, the, you know, ramp up to the gate and he says, you can't do this. And he's like, I have no choice. And then he says, unless there's something you've left out of your report and the way he says it, there's just this little twinkle in his eye and you can tell he's just playing mm-hmm. O'Neill just ever so slightly. And uh, that's the Hammond that we'll, uh, nice. we'll know and love. Yeah, and, and eventually he will become known as Hammond of Texas. <laughs> nice. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Very much so. Becomes kind of a father figure to many yeah. of them. They look up to a friend, you know. Yeah. It was. It was. I agree with what y'all said. It was. Right. It was kind of. Interesting to think back how yeah, he is initially presented, and talking as opposed to where he about comes. his grandkids. No, as he does uh, later on in the series, because it almost seems like he's set up to be an like an antagonist in the first in the first few scenes. But they, it seems like even by yeah. the second half of this episode, they've dropped that. Right. No, that 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 that's that's major. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, almost that's, like that's they were trying major to carry Samuels. on the he, general the, west. He's the one that's the you know theme. <laughs> oh, yeah. They gotta have. Sorry. He's just oh. yeah. He's just kind of written as her. He dropped. Um, oh I, I love him. Yeah, I love him. He's he's. Stop. I mean, Stop. I love him because he's just so bureaucratic and by the book, oh, and no. he's he's not evil. Like we'll get a lot of evil colonels and stuff down the road, and then we get you know Major Davis, who is kind of just like he's helpful and stuff. But yeah, Major Samuels, he's just. He's like in the 80s movie, whenever you would have like the, you know, the, the principals like Toadie or something, mm-hmm. you know, and, and yeah, 
He's <laughs> he's good. I like him. And uh, we get a, a new Ferretti here yep. as well as a new Kowalski. And Ferretti in this one is is played by Brent State, who um, you know I I I love uh, you know Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, which is the you know the Kevin mm. Sorbo sci fi show. And if you've ever watched that, the uh, there's a priest uh, on it who's actually a giant carnivorous bat, but he is a, a, a priest and a Reverend uh, Rev Bem on that show was played by Brent State. And so it was good to see him without his Magog makeup on. But um, yeah, a different show, but uh, it was, it's just good to see those same you know Canadian actors work and their way is, through all the different shows. It is fun to see different actors in different yeah. roles, you know, some connections that can be made between the different series and everything. And, and yeah, you do see the same actors kind of coming on, and we'll we'll see that too throughout Stargate that there will be there'll be actors. We we talked about that already, where you know there are actors who are in the movies that are that later up show up in the uh, uh, in the mm-hmm. series and everything, you know. So that that that's kind of fun to watch for. You know, one thing I will say, though, I just looking at all the characters, one of the biggest complaints about Star Trek, especially, is it takes a season for the characters to really gel. Right. You don't have that here. Within a couple of episodes, our characters that we love are there. Frankly, by the end of this episode, some of our some of those characters have already kind of gelled. Right. It's funny to compare this to like Encounter at Farpoint. And just how in- mm-hmm. how incredibly oh. stilted and uncomfortable, yeah, trigger warning, uncomfortable that episode is to watch. Like, whenever I have friends uh, ask me where they should start with Star Trek, I always tell them start with the third season of Next Generation. Don't you can watch the first two seasons afterwards once you actually like the show. But if you try to start with that, you're going to hate it. And this does not yeah. seem to have that same issue. <laughs> and if you want to hear an epic. Epic, epic rant. Just go listen to Secrets of Star Trek about that episode. Oh, that's a good one. We had way too much fun with Encounter at Farpoint. <laughs> but uh yeah, there's there's so many so this that is one just and, and maybe that says a lot to the writers. The writers and the actors, because there's great actors, but the writers as well, you know, the creators, Jonathan Glasner and Brad Wright, they got the basics of this this series down very quickly mm-hmm. and it just ran and we see that in here again you know with with the some of the issues we've talked about that they kind of realized later yeah that was dumb but we had to do it because they took they took the the what the movie gave them and they ran with it well right even the, yeah just yeah and they had even they had been big fans of the movie and they were pitching this show to mgm um, while they were both working on the Outer Limits, which is um, you know the 1990s Outer Limits, I actually think it's a really good you know kind of Twilight Zoney anthology show. And uh, when they finally got the go ahead, they locked themselves in a room for three months and just rewatched the movie, thought about you know how can we expand on this and everything, and uh, their hard yeah, work definitely. paid off. Because just this first uh, episode is much much better than the movie. I feel like takes the the idea and then does something much more interesting than just a one-off movie with it. And I was reading that uh, Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin, who wrote and directed the original movie, have absolutely nothing to do with this series, and they've said they don't want anything to do with it, apparently. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. They said they still haven't had the idea to make a separate, continue their trilogy. Yeah, which I'm kind of confused why you would... 
you created something that was a foundation for an incredible long running. Well, I mean, we saw how series how well that spun with, uh, other series. So, I mean, so. why would you discount all of that? <laughs> Don't bother. <laughs> so, mm, didn't see it. As long as I don't make another Godzilla movie, I think I'm, yeah. oh, man. I'm okay. I blocked that one out you know, of my just, <laughs> Sometimes it's best, you know, if someone creates a series or creates a, a a universe, to do it once and leave it alone. Isn't that right, George Lucas? Oh, did I say that out loud? <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, but last week we said what a great foundation the movie was, right? And now I, I think that watching this mm-hmm. pilot, it just mm-hmm. shows you how they they took it shows you kind of how small that foundation was in a way, and how the writers and on this one took it and just right. expanded that and foundation. And that was the true springboard springboard for all of expand some of the, the, rest of the series and Atlantis you know, that and, the that and everything coming up. That people step through, they're dematerialized, they get sent through the wormhole in a tra- in a transporter beam, and then rematerialized at the end. And that's why they come through cold is because that initial right. shock. They do retcon that later, though. Also, the tumbling out of the gate does get retconned nice. later. So something to look forward to. <laughs> Right. So was yeah, anyone else they were watching gone it for again? What, surprised hours? Yeah, at how exactly. fast well, they put up that hours, iris? Basically. Oh, okay. We already have it. We're great. I was wondering yeah. about that, and this comes and then it's up, like amazing uh, in the next episode. <laughs> um, but when they when they put the iris up, they like close it, but then they just open it back up. I'm like, why don't you just leave it closed? I mean, maybe that's something they'll explain later on. But I feel like if you got that problem, just mm-hmm. leave it closed and. They're not going to be coming through. Yeah, well, I think it looks cool. I guess, yeah. 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 Well, it looks really cool it, when it closes. It goes, you got to have the swoosh. It disrupts and, 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 the visual. Know, they will right? show eventually people getting eaten by the swoosh. Oh, nice. Where somebody's standing in the right, wrong place, wrong time, and whoop, they're not there anymore. And maybe that's, I, can, I don't know if that's ever been the in-universe explanation, but that seems like a good explanation to me is, you know, the whoosh would take out the iris. Yeah. Yeah, and we we do get our first uh, you know thuds against the iris in this episode too. I think there were three yep. Jaffa who who stepped through without realizing the iris there, and so that's something you always have to. They use that for great dramatic effect, where instead of like actually showing someone meeting a horrible demise, you'll just hear a thud or see a little blip on a monitor, and you're like, Ew. oh, that's something mm-hmm. else that this episode had that the yep. others don't, and it was probably a Showtime thing. Blood. There's a lot of you know blood and gore for this show because we don't usually see any. The staff, uh, the staffs didn't cauterize the wounds yet. I guess later on, you know, they'll get with the staff and there's no blood, and you're like, oh, I guess it cauterized the wound when it hit him or something. As a lightsaber effect. I figured all that was for shock, exactly. shock and awe. It just lends itself to being more yeah. family friendly again. You don't have, you don't have a lot of like the nudity will be gone. You don't have curse mm-hmm. words. I don't think ever that I can think of off the top of my, you know, and then you don't have gore. You don't have a lot of just ugly shooting to kill people. You know, they tend to deal with, you know, like grapple with the morality of it. So for us, being able to watch it with our kids. We we got the claymores in this one uh, too, for the first one. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of like their go-to weapon early on. And it's, it's that whole a team effect where if somebody gets hit by a grenade, you know, it doesn't blow them apart. It just makes them like fly off and, you know, fly over a wall or something. It's like yeah. you have these people being yeah. hit by Claymore anti-personnel mines. And they're like, ah, oh, and falling down or something. And got to got to sneak the Wilhelm scream yeah. in there somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. 
But I think that helps with the longevity of shows like this, where you can go back and watch them even 20, 30 years later with your family. Because like with with the new Star Trek series, like I'm going to show my son the old Star Trek shows because I grew up watching those. But I'm probably not going to show him Discovery. If he wants to watch Discovery when he's an adult, he can, but I don't see the reason. No, that's that's good, a good point. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all, though, with the fact that they do cut out the blood and the gore. They do cut out that there's no nudity or anything. That's a lot, probably a lot of Richard Dean Anderson. I was going to ask that. Yep. Because he, because uh, I know he's, that, that was kind of one of his guiding things with MacGyver. You know, he always showed him doing different, like, you know, working in, you know, with in, with children in these, you know, inner cities and things like that. Well, I, I know for a fact that was a lot of his encouragement as he became a bigger star doing this role of now i want to show this character doing things for people yeah. you know, especially children and in macgyver the original when he was doing it if, correct me if i'm wrong but he had a rule that his character could never shoot somebody right or use once. a gun mm-hmm. he did once he did it once okay yep. he, he shot somebody once and then after that they're like this is not something the character would do and i was i was doing the math which wasn't that difficult but you know this premiered almost 24 years ago and i was looking well what were the movies that were that were out you know in 1997 when this premiered it was uh you know austin powers men in black uh science fiction was gattaca fifth element starship troopers this is right when uh deep space nine was going from season five to season six just to make mm-hmm. anybody who watched those things while they were airing like feel old it is kind of interesting mm-hmm. that hey, no. that into that <laughs> you know into that we have this show that you know i wouldn't say it's it's timeless but it definitely you know seems as as relevant or as enjoyable today as it was when it first came out Mm -hmm. and a lot of those movies and and tv shows you really can't say that about like time cop for example (laughs) (laughs) nice yeah now other than some of the dated effects which are pretty easy to overlook really enjoyed it it's got got the same kind of thing going on um it's nowhere near as bad as babylon 5 but it just shows that when a show has a good story you can overlook any sort of datedness from the effects well and these these effects were not that in your face either i mean you had the biggest effects you really had was of course the gate and that didn't look that terrible there there are a couple of scenes i did notice like when they're walking into the gate and everything kind of slows down as they step through you know to do the special effect with it other than that it there aren't a lot of special effects you got the blast from the the staff weapons and things like that. And I think that helps a lot. Of course, you have the, the replay of the, the gate travel effect, which gets cut down dramatically, if not completely cut out following. This is like the one episode, because the pilot, they had to show the full effect of going through and the stars whooshing by and all that. You don't see that a lot anymore after this. And I think they took that just straight from the movie. Last time, I read that last time that we talked that, yeah, it was it was an effect they brought over. And, and if you if you don't like the special effects in this version, apparently the 2009 uh, edit, they, they did a George Lucas and added in a whole bunch of different effects, which addresses another one of my problems with the episode where you have what appears to be a death glider appear and then like 20 yeah. Gould and Jafog like beam out of it. And you're like, whoa, this is right. They make yeah. it clear that that's like a Hatak, you know, one of those cargo ships. And then the death gliders are separate. My 14-year-old goes, when did a death glider ever carry 14 people? (laughs) Good catch. (laughs) We got introduced to like the Gould UN in this episode, too. It's like when they're all going through Apophis's harem and Mm -hmm. stuff. I don't know. Like, I don't recognize any of those Gould. You know, they're all wearing like their weird costumes Mm -hmm. and stuff. I don't think they're tied to any like specific ethnicity or or time or place. But yeah, so that was that was something kind of interesting, too, because, you know, we we don't yet have the idea of the system lords or or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But they are developing the fact that there are more of them because there are some of of those people. It's clear that they're not just, you know, helpers or, you know, servants. They are Mm -hmm. Gould themselves because they've got the voice, you know, the modulated voice and uh, to show these are of the same race as Ra and Apophis. We get to see Chulak for the first time. You know, of course, they, they make it sound in this like it's 
the city and then they retcon it to the, the planet later that's a place that uh, you get to see very often that just happens to look like british columbia and like half the planets in the universe planet vancouver <laughs> well the ancients were very particular about where they settled their their people they like the climate yeah yeah oh and the other thing we get the first time here uh like one of the almost not the first but one of the very first spoken lines of dialogue in this is jaffa Cree. Yes. oh yes mm-hmm. so we'll we'll be hearing a lot of that <laughs> nice All right. Well, I think that'll about wrap it up. But before we go, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Secrets of Stargate, including Aaron L., Morgan N., Jacob K., Richard L., and Alexandra S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the Secrets of Stargate and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Be sure to follow the show in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or the SQPN YouTube channel. To find previous episodes of Secrets of Stargate and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com slash stargate. You can email us at stargate at sqpn.com or follow StarQuest on social media and Facebook at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or on Twitter at sqpn. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the next episode of SG-1, The Enemy Within. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Stargate. Thank you much. Lisa Jones, thank you as well. You're welcome and see you next time. Victor Lambs, thank you too. Thanks, Jack and Cree. (laughs) And once again, I'm Jack Barazzini. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Stargate on StarQuest. Anyway, I'm sorry, but that just happens to be how I feel about it. What do you think?